So are you ready to go mining for gold? I am. Uh, one reason that I use the term mining for gold when I say that we're going to be diving into God's word and digging out some treasure has to do with Proverb 25:11, which says, Timely advice, or in some translations, a word aptly spoken, is lovely like golden apples in a silver basket. And we might think, Oh, that's poetic and that's nice, but there's some meaning behind that. So let me mine for some golds within that proverb itself. That phrase comes from one of four couplets in the proverbs in that section. And so even in itself, the design is lovely. And that one couplet has something for us. Because a couplet is something in the proverbs that takes a physical object, like apples or a basket, and they compare it to human characteristics and they come up with a spiritual application. So there's a lot of great spiritual wisdom, even in something as simple as a couplet that talks about apples of gold in a silver basket. Apples of gold is also what we get when there's no exact correspondence between one word in one language from a particular region or country into English here in America. Because the apples were not really apples, we translated it to apples. It was probably something like a citron. It was this large fruit that was similar to an orange and it was probably golden or yellow in color that grows in the Middle East. And so we might say a citron of gold if we're going to be really accurate to talk about what was there in Israel at the time. And it was the kind of thing that in its ripest form, it was juicy and refreshing and sweet and good to the taste and would be a pick-me-up because it would give you a little extra natural sugar so that if you were hot, which you are most of the time in Israel, <laughs> there are many months of the year where they're very, very hot. If somebody were to come to you when you were working outside and they handed you this apple of gold, it would be a pick-me-up and it would refresh you and it would give you energy to keep going with the task at hand. And so there's something about a word of encouragement that comes from this apple of gold that's given to you at an apt time. But there's even another meaning that goes a little bit deeper because the word for word in that particular expression comes from the courtroom setting and it's a word which is basically a judgment, the pronouncement. And so a word is a pronouncement and if you've been the one who's been mistreated unjustly and then you're in the courtroom and you've been sweating the details and all of a sudden the gavel comes down and the judge pronounces rightly that you are innocent because now you're justified, then suddenly you're going to be picked up and encouraged because there's a right judgment. All of that can be wrapped up in just two lines of text in a proverb. And so when I say that we're going to be mining for gold, what I really should be saying is we're going to be mining for citron or we're going to be mining for golden apples. And as we think about what happens in Scripture, even the Scripture is like the silver basket because it's so beautifully ornate and crafted. Just the very fact that we have couplets and poetry and other kinds of literature in the Bible, it's beautifully crafted like somebody who really knows what they're doing. Joy and I were on our little vacation to get away for our anniversary trip last week. We got to see some of the northern peninsula, the upper peninsula, and I didn't know that the Elsies had come from such a gorgeous part of our state. We had much to talk about today. And Joy wanted me to zip into this glass blower place because she had been told by somebody else that there were some good glass blowers up near Calumet in the middle of nowhere. And she saw one little hand-painted sign that said glass, with an arrow. 
And she said, turn here. And so I quickly turned, hoping not to get hit by anybody because I always do what my wife tells me when she's telling me where to go. And we found this little house and we, we thought, is this it? It doesn't look like a glass blowing company. There were a few colorful things in the window. So we went up on the porch and there was a guy sitting there who kind of scared us because we didn't know he was there until we turned the corner. And then we, he heard us talking and he said, yeah, you can go on in. There's somebody in there. He'll be happy to speak to you. So we went inside, and there was a museum-like room in there with all these old bottles all over the place, and they were all numbered, and they had corresponding descriptions. It was fascinating. And Joy said, this looks like a museum. And the guy there said, it is. These are all bottles that were made for a particular industry in this area years ago, and they've been collected and curated over time. And she said uh, something like, is there anything for sale here? And he said, oh, yes, in the very front. And we looked around in the window, and there was a small collection of things that looked like they'd been hand-blown. And he said, if you'll just walk through that door, there was one innocuous door to the side of that museum room, he said, all will be revealed. (laughs) And so sure enough, we opened the door, and you step down into this room, and it's the glass-blowing shop. And it's got the furnace that's going and all this stuff. So we got to see this wonderful presentation of a guy who was blowing glass. And of course, because my wife has many questions, we spoke to the guy who did that after we watched him make a beautiful vase for several minutes afterwards and found out that he's a biology professor at a Lutheran college in the Upper Peninsula. And this was just his hobby. So this was by day, he's a professor, but in the evenings and on weekends, he blows glass. So then we went out to see if we could actually afford one of the vases there, and we could. And so we bought one, and it turned out to be one that he had actually made. And he was very delighted by that and a little uh, embarrassed, I think, as a quiet man. And what that showed me was that there's great artistry that goes into something. And when they're using the kind of phrases they're using here in Proverbs, it means that there's somebody who has put in hours and hours, I mean hundreds of hours of work to do something in a presentation that looks lovely enough to say, this is the kind of silver basket that deserves to be put on the banquet table of the king himself. And so when you think about scripture, that's the kind of care that has gone into the crafting of the scripture in which we can find these apples of gold. So as we're diving in here to the scripture, we're unpacking it bit by bit, and that's why it's taking us so long to get through Mark's gospel, because there's a lot of apples of gold in these scriptures. So we're going to get ready to tackle this next section, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. And I think that after we've done some apple picking, it's going to move your trust meter right over to the right when it comes to the trustworthiness of Scripture and why we can trust it fully. Are we ready? Let's do it. Starting at verse 30, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, Let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. If there had been an upper peninsula, they probably would have gone there. Um, That was my own insertion. Forgive me for adding to the scriptures there. Okay, verse 31. Let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left the boat for a quiet place. Or no, I'm sorry. They left by boat, still around the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee, for a quiet place where they could be alone. 
But many people recognized them and saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages to buy something to eat. But Jesus said, You feed them. With what? they asked. We would have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. Well, how much bread do you have? he asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, We have three dump trucks filled with bread. Is that what your translation? No, mine doesn't either. He said, No, we, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. And you would think at that point, this is me inserting something else again. You think at that point that Jesus would say, Oh, okay, well, in that case, yes, send them off to the farms and villages. But he says, verse 39, he told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven. Think of this picture in your mind, and think if there's something else that comes to your mind as I describe it, and blessed them. And then, breaking the loaves into pieces... He kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share, and they all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men, and here's a big parenthetical note, and their families were fed. Let's dive in and find out what we have to look at here. We're only going to get through about the cookie and the filling of another Oreo cookie presentation from Mark, and you'll see why in just a second. Let me mention that this miracle displays more than just the supernatural power of a good teacher. It reveals important details that really point us to Jesus' identity. The feeding of the 5,000 is really a miracle about Jesus' identity. Mark presents a mystery, but he also provides us the tools we need to solve the mystery, which is about Jesus' identity. This miracle shows up in all four Gospels. It's only one of two miracles that show up in all four Gospels. The other one is his resurrection. Why is it in all four? Because it's about Jesus' identity. Do you see what I just did there? When something is presented four times, it tends to stick out. It's like he's jackhammering down deep to make sure that we get this idea. And Mark wants us to get the idea that this is not just something about a supernatural miracle. It's about Jesus' identity. So what is this miracle about? Jesus' identity. Yes. I think you're starting to catch on. Verse 30, we have this first part, debriefing session after the training mission. It says the apostles returned to Jesus. Remember this picks up from where we left off because he had sent them out two by two into the surrounding towns and villages. They were supposed to take nothing with them that particular time because it was a training mission. They were learning to depend on him. He gave them not only 
the message to speak because they were preaching about repentance and preaching about the coming kingdom, all the things that he'd been teaching them, probably similar to some of the stuff that we had in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And they were out there doing that, mentioning that the king is here. The kingdom is among you. You need to repent and prepare yourself because Jesus is among us now. And they were given the ability to heal people who were sick and to cast out demons. So they're coming back to debrief from this mission trip. And then we understand that there's something about this that Mark wanted us to know. So he inserts some facts about the death of John the Baptist that comes into play here as well. One thing that does for us, I think, is that it gives us a clue about what Jesus may have been struggling with emotionally at this very time in his ministry. Because when you're weighed down with a serious loss, as many of you have been in your lives, some of you more recently than others, I'm afraid, it's tough to concentrate on pouring yourself out in ministry to other people. And yet that's where Jesus found himself. He's still struggling emotionally, I'm sure, because he felt everything that we have felt emotionally because of the loss of John the Baptist. And yet there's still so much need and so many people clamoring for what only he can provide. So that gives us a clue about that. There's some more that we'll look at in just a second about why I think Mark included this information, the specifics about John the Baptist that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. Well, they're in this training mission because this is a part of the refining process and the training process of turning them from disciples into apostles. There's nothing like coming back to your professor and reporting back exactly what you think you heard him say, and this is what we said, making sure that we were reporting it correctly, because he'll tell you if you got it wrong or not. And so it's a good learning technique, and Jesus did that with them, and they'd been practicing in small groups, so to speak, with each other, and then he sent them out. Now they're debriefing from that and saying, okay, what did you experience? What did you tell them? How did you say it? What was their response? Did you have to wipe some of the dust off your sandals and walk away on some of those times because they rejected your word? Or were they receptive? How many people did you heal? How did that happen? Did it glorify God? I'm sure that they had some great discussion about that in this training process. There's something we need to pay attention to, and that's the term for the 12. From all the way at the beginning of Mark, leading right up to chapter 6, verse 30, what was the term, if you could just flip through real quick and look at it, what was the term that was used for the 12? I'll tell you. It was disciples. They have not used the term apostles yet, not as a title. It is used early on when he was calling them together, but that was apostolo, the verb tense of that, to be sent out. So he's talking about what they were going to do, but not who they were. This is the first time it shows up after their training mission that they use that as a title, that Jesus uses it. So he's saying it's, as we would say, a deacon or an elder or a pastor or a licensed minister or some other term that would say this is his title now. And so they started to be referred to by Jesus as apostles after they had come back from their first training mission. I think that's good. And I think there's some application here for us. I think that means that if we sense a call from God, there's an expectation that we're going to follow through on that call by doing something in response to his call on our life. We're going to prepare ourselves. A call to ministry is a call to prepare for ministry. We all heard that a lot in seminary, and they would say, the reason you're here is because this is part of your preparation process. But the same is true for all of us as disciples. All of us can go forth into whatever field God has given us, wherever you work and study and live and play. And so you can all do something with what God has called you to do, but it's also necessary that we prepare for that and that we respond in obedience to what God asks us to do.
I think it's interesting that I've run into a handful of people in 40 years, 40 plus years of ministry. They would say to me, I had a coffee with one guy. He said, uh, you know, I spent several months looking in the scriptures and asking the Holy Spirit for real specific instructions and knowledge. And I think he's given me some special knowledge. And some of the stuff he started revealing to me, I thought, that doesn't really match what I think Orthodox Christianity would think of as what the Bible is saying in these passages. So the question would be, do you have a great following? And he did not. In fact, it seemed like all he did everywhere he went was to stir up trouble. Because he kept trying to tell people things that he felt God was telling us through Scripture, but nobody else really seemed to agree with that. He didn't have a lot of affirmation, and so there was no fruit born from his ministry. He just kept going from place to place, stirring up trouble. He would leave when he realized that they didn't see what a gifted teacher he really was. And he would go to the next place and stir up more trouble. The apostles were apostles because they followed through on teaching from Christ, and it was correct teaching, and they got affirmation from Christ on top of their training so that he would say, this is the fruit that is born from your obedience. You are correctly proclaiming the gospel, and this is the result. And so there ought to be that, and I think that's another reason why, quite frankly, God tends to organize his church into smaller groups like congregations, even as small as ours, for the purpose of affirming that fruit. There are a number of affirmations that can come to us and somebody can say, yes, I can see that God is really in that. The body is being built up. People are being pointed to the truth. Jesus Christ is being exalted as the only person who can save. And he is the way of salvation. Yes, there is fruit born from that. And so that affirmation is necessary for us to be able to march forward in obedience to what God asks us to do. Well, back in June, we learned about Mark's literary teaching style, and I used the Oreo cookie as an example of this one cookie, something in the middle that interrupts the first story that's being shared, and then another story. He does that on purpose, because each one of those parts helps give each other part some more meaning, and that's another way for us to find some more citron, some more apples of gold of this truth. So, cookie number one, sending out the twelve. That was the first part of this. He's saying he sent them out. Now he's bringing them back for the debriefing. That's cookie number one in this section. What was their purpose? To make Jesus known. The purpose is similar to the king's heralds who would go before the king before he would enter a town. The king is coming. The king is coming. They were supposed to do that because he wanted to make sure that this was being spread far and wide because it was the right time for that message to be give, given to people in a broader area than just in Capernaum. That's the same thing for us. We need to make Jesus known. And we can't save anybody. We've shared this a lot. None of us have the power or the ability to save anybody. All we are are the messengers. And we're responsible for being honest and truthful and loving. But it's up to that person to respond positively by accepting that truth or by rejecting the message. But we're all messengers. He's the famous one. We're the ones who are just supposed to make him famous. Then there's the filling, and that's where Mark comes in and talks that little interruption about John the Baptist and those details that we learned about with his murder. It's almost like he's saying, we now interrupt this mission briefing to learn some details about John's murder. John's death served a couple of different purposes. One, it showed us Jesus' mental state and emotional state. 
at this time in his ministry. But for another, it shows us a foreshadowing of what's going to happen even with Jesus. Because as the prophets were treated, Mark does a good job of pointing that out when he brings in the Old Testament and shows how it's cohesive with the New Testament. The prophets were mistreated, and they were cast out, some of them killed. John the Baptist comes, he's mistreated, he's killed. What's going to happen to Jesus? Same thing. And so Mark is tying these threads together for us to understand this was all prophesied in the Old Testament. We knew this was going to happen, and it's part of the affirmation of God to us to let us know he is the promised one, and this is what's going to be happening to him too. It also is a little bit of a clue to these now apostles that if we're going to follow Christ and be obedient to what he's asking us to do, we can expect mistreatment and even death, some of us, as well. It can certainly happen, and it certainly happened to everybody but one of those 12. Judas excluded, of course, in that regard. John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation for us, but the others were martyred for their faith. So clearly that came true. So it was a bit of a foreshadowing for them as well. I think it's like Mark wanted to say, okay, guys, yes, you came back and you said, wow, the demons reacted to us in the power of your authority, which you had given to us, and we cast out demons. Yay! We also saw people that were sick, and they got healed. Yay! And he goes, and you're going to be mistreated. Oh. It's like he didn't want to, to get over the top with his exuberance before they understood what really following Jesus really means. Because all of us come to Jesus with a risk if we're going to follow him obediently. There's a risk involved in following Christ to everybody. But let me give you two parallel New Testament passages that I think are going to polish these apples and bring out the luster a little bit more. Ready for some apple polishing? Okay. These are golden delicious. Colossians 3, 3 through 4. For you died, he said, this is metaphoric, of course, died to our sin, dying to the old life, and your life is now hidden, and that term means securely hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's Paul speaking to the people in Colossae. And then also Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Now when a man found it, he hid it again and went out in his joy and sold all he had and bought that field. Why would he do that? Why would he give up everything else and sell everything he had, some of which I'm sure must have been valuable, because what was in that field was more valuable than everything else he possessed. Those parallel passages show us that this is what Jesus is trying to teach his apostles. Yes, you're going to be mistreated. Yes, you're going to be rejected, even though you're the messenger. Some people are going to kill the messenger, and yet... What you have to gain in Christ is far more valuable than anything else. And so you should have the response, okay, yes, I know what I'm facing, but I'm all in anyway. I gladly give up everything else, including comfort, including the promise of all kinds of wealth, whatever it might be. If I have to give up anything, if I have to suffer pain, that's okay, because I've got Christ, and I'll be hidden with him, and when he's revealed, I'll be there with him. 
an American pastor from California. I read about him. I don't know him personally. He was in another country doing some mission work, and it was a country that's difficult to reach because of the religious background of some of these folks in that country. We have some missionaries that we know, and they have been serving in that same country. And this guy got really angry that this Christian pastor was trying to recruit other people to Christianity. That's his term, not the pastor's. He was trying to convert him to Christianity. And he was showing his anger to that pastor, and he said, if you convert me, I kill you. And I think the pastor said what I think he meant was, if you convert me and my people, if you're continuing to try to convert me, then we will kill you for that. And I, I thought, well, that doesn't really pass the logic test. Because if he truly became converted, he would be trying to convert everybody else too because he would found something so magnanimous that he wanted to share it with everybody. But he gets his point. His point was, you are trying to do something as a proselyte, proselyte, proselytize us, and I don't want that, and so I will kill you for trying to do that. But the pastor said wisely, well, that's the difference between you and me and between your religion and my love for God's Son, Jesus Christ. Because you're willing to kill for your religion, but I'm willing to die for Jesus Christ. That's something to think about. And I think when other people see that, it really sets Christianity apart as being totally unique in terms of all the religions of the world. And the martyrs in the early church in the first century, Joy and I watched a documentary about that not too long ago, some of these people would just confound the people around them, including emperors, by their willingness to give up their lives. And they would say, you can take my life if you wish, but you can never take away my joy because I'm dying for my faith in Christ and I'll be with him forever. It totally upended. In fact, that's why some of the verses in the New Testament say that they turned Jerusalem upside down with this gospel, the message, because people were willing to give even their lives for the sake of the gospel. I think some of us feel at times like we've been persecuted. And as I speak with missionaries who have actually been in places where persecution is really rampant, I would think, yeah, we don't qualify. I don't think being unfriended on Facebook qualifies as real persecution. Uh, if I get my feelings hurt, I think, oh, I got my feelings hurt. That's, that's just getting your feelings hurt. That's not being persecuted. When somebody says, I'm going to burn your church building down because of what you're preaching, and then they come and do it two weeks later, that's real persecution. And that kind of stuff really happens in different places. So God spoke to me in this passage by saying, you need to grow a little thicker skin, my friend, and be willing to allow some of the negative things that will come at you without saying, oh, that's persecution. Some people just have that persecution chip on their shoulder and they walk up close to somebody and dare them to knock it off. You know, just come on, I dare you. I'm a Christian. Say something. Come on, I dare you. If somebody cuts you off and passes a little too close on the freeway, we go, oh, see, I'm being persecuted. He must have known I was a Christian. No, I think he just cuts everybody off. And you just happen to be the guy in front of him. You know, it's so easy for people to do that. And many times we'll get so up in the pictures and upset about things that really don't have anything to do with our salvation in Christ. We really make things much bigger than they probably should be instead of keeping the main thing the main thing and thinking, if I'm being persecuted, it ought to be because I'm clearly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then if there's real serious pushback, maybe that's persecution. But 
we don't need to be jerks about it because as a good friend of mine, Ed Gore, once said, Christian jerks are still jerks. And we don't want to be that. What we do know is that we don't have to be like those football. In some countries, they call it football because they use their feet only. We call it soccer in this country. Our son played for years. And there's this way, you've seen it happen, there's this way of people when the ref isn't quite looking that they kind of look like somebody tripped them up and they go sprawling and they're holding their shins and thinking, oh, you've broken my shin, red card, that guy fouled me, fouled me, fouled me. You know, we, <laughs> not that you do that, James, but, but I'm sure you've seen it in others on the soccer field. Uh, that happened to our son one time in a game, and he was on a travel league, and he had played against this other t guy in a, a high school league, so he's playing against his friend, essentially, because they both played on the travel league together, but now they were in high school. And, and this guy who was about a foot taller than my son at the time, just kept dogging him, and he was clipping his heels all the time. And So Clark waited until just the right moment when the ref wasn't quite looking his way, and the guy was starting to step on his heel again, so Clark just stuck his leg right out there. Man, the guy just tumbled all over him and just wham, wham, wham. And the ref looks and sees this huge guy piled on top of my son. Red car. And the guy looked at Clark like, what? And he goes, they learn how to do that. But some Christians are like that. They're, they're just waiting for somebody to step outside some little line of legalism that they have held up as being really important. And if some, somebody disagrees them about that, they go, red card. You're persecuting me. We're not on the same page. We don't need to be that way. We need to be willing to lay down our lives for other people with compassion and tell them the truth without compromise so that they can see a difference in our lives and be attracted to the Christ in us. That's what Mark is trying to show us in his gospel. Then, cookie number two is the feeding of the 5,000, and we don't have time to look into that fully today, so I'm going to whet your appetite just enough to make you hungry for cookie number two for next week. And that is, starting with verse 31, Jesus invited them to rest for a while. He said, boys, let's get out of here for a while, and let's go find a quiet place, because we just need to rest a little bit. And so they did that. That was the West Texas version of the Bible. And so his apostles and Jesus did not even have enough time to eat. So they were hungry, they were tired, they'd been ministering like crazy. They'd had this debriefing session and they just needed to try to get some rest. Were they able to do that? No, not really. Because they, all they had was the time in the boat until they got to the next destination and everybody had already gathered there. Have any of you been so busy, perhaps in the last... I don't know, 20 months or so, so that you didn't even have time to eat for a while? I know some of you, and I know some of the jobs that you have held, and i got to say, I'm sure that's happened to some of you. doesn't for most of us, but that's pretty busy. And some of our frontline workers and people in medical fields and other folks serving the public, it can be very difficult at times. And there's a difference between those who are pouring themselves out in ministry, and we love it, those of us who prepare all week and then we're pouring ourselves out, the praise team members, the folks who show up to work hard to make this possible, we love doing that. We get filled up by doing it, but you can only pour yourself out for so long in whatever your job happens to be, including in ministry, before you've got to get filled back up again somehow. You've got to find some restora restoration and let God restore your soul. 
And even Jesus needed that. And he knew that his disciples needed to develop a rhythm of rest so that they too could find a good work-life balance which is needed so that we could be productive. Because compassion fatigue is real. (laughs) The struggle is real. We can pour ourselves out in whatever our roles might be so much that we just need to step back and get replenished. There are those who are on the receiving end of certain ministries, and they're going, this is great. Don't stop. Keep pouring it out. I wish we could sing for another two hours. It's like Peter at the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's build some tents and camp out here and stay up at the top and bask in God's glory. And the people who are pouring themselves out in ministry are going, we need to rest a little bit. And that's exactly where these disciples were. Let me end this segment. Are you balanced in your work rest rhythm? Have you found the right balance for that? Do you struggle with that? Do you struggle with our American have to be always doing something or else we feel guilty so that we have a hard time just sitting still and resting for a moment or two? Do you have a regular time when you can restore somehow and to find what that activity of rest looks like for you? Because for some people, rest is an activity, and they're replenished by it. Somebody can go kayaking, and that's expending a lot of energy, but it can be restful for them if that's a part of how God wired them. Other people, taking a good two-hour nap is really restorative. And so that can be a, a part of your rhythm of rest. It just depends on your personality and the way you're wired. I met this guy, Tom Wolf, on the Church, of, Church on Brady in East L.A., who said to a bunch of ministers, your rest rhythm is going to look different from another pastor's rest rhythm. And some of the folks in your congregation, it just depends on how we're each wired. Now, Tom was wired at 440. And he was going like this all the time. I don't know how anybody could keep up with him. He had this massive library in his study, and he had read every one of those books. And it was just massive. And he never stopped. He just was an energizer bunny. And there are other pastors that say, whew, my tongue's hanging out by 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. Man, i got to get away and get quiet for a while. And so he would say, find your own rhythm of rest and operate within that rhythm. If you found it, then you're productive. You'll find the sweet spot because we all find that place where we're being productive. And we know if we're starting to go over the top and we say, "Uh uh-oh, I'm at the edge of burnout. I need to pull back. I think this is a good time of year for us to talk about that. Because this is the time of year when a lot of people manage to find that last getaway from the summer. That's why our numbers are down so much. That's a good thing. I don't disparage getting away for the summer. It's great. We need to get that restoration as well. And I think it's okay for us to say, God, I appreciate all that you're doing in our midst right now, but I'm hurting right now. I'm grieving. I need some time to process my grief. I'm going to step away for a little bit. Or I've just been working so much that I need to step away for just a little while and get restored. Is that okay? And I think because of this passage, God would say, of course it's okay. I'm the one who gave you the Sabbath day. I started to build into you the need for a a restorative rhythm. And you need to find that balance for you. So if Jesus can invite his own disciples slash apostles away to find the right rhythm of rest, I think it's okay for us to find that as well. And then when we do come back, like I'm feeling today, I'm feeling so much more restored that I'm liable to speak too quickly because I get excited about mining for golden apples in this silver basket that we've been looking into. But 
we need to think about it this way. It's not like the world would tell you in the commercials. It's not about, I need some me time. I'm going to light some candles and put on the incense and sip my wine in a tub of bubbles. You know, that's not what he's saying here. It's not about all about me. It's knowing that we're being responsible because we need to maintain our energy level so that we'll be productive to those that we're called to serve. It still comes back to our being able to serve others. And we're not helping anybody if we're burned out to the point that we can't serve. My sister and I talked to my mom in finally toward the very latter part of my father's uh, life on earth. And he was only in a group home for a few short months before he went to heaven. But he had Parkinson's and some of the medications started to interfere with his cognitive abilities and it became just too much for my sweet little tiny mom and she couldn't pick him up off the floor anymore and he was falling a lot. So my sister and I said, Mom, because we love you, we need you to know that we support you in finding some rest for yourself because you're not going to be good for dad if you're in the hospital because you have set yourself up for doing the impossible. And so she listened to us, and she was able to restore her own health, and she lived 10 years beyond when my dad went to heaven. I think it's okay for us to say, in America, we keep pushing and pushing and pushing, and sometimes we push too hard. And we need to give ourselves some slack and say, can I take a breath, get restored, so that I'm more productive in the work God has given me to do, both in my job and in my ministry, whatever that looks like. Let's pray and ask God to help us find that rhythm so that we can be as productive as he wants us to be in the areas that he gives us to serve. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would guide us through your spirit into finding our own rhythm of rest, not just so that we can be self-focused, but so that we can restore our strength and our enthusiasm level so that we can be more productive when we are being obedient to doing exactly what you called us to do, whatever that looks like. And I know that you can because I've seen it happen. We're seeing it happen even this summer. And for those who may be in need of that rest, I pray that you'll just give them that sense of peace about taking some time, working through the feelings that they have to work through, trusting you to do whatever work of healing that may need to take place in their hearts. And then when you have restored them, I pray that they'll recognize it, they'll thank you for it, and they'll dive in at the appropriate level when you've given them the green light to dive back into doing what they need to do. Thank you that you do that for all of us because you love us that much. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.